And welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Kim Kovacs, CEO at the Arcview Group. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thanks so much, Kira. What a pleasure to be here. Kimberly Kovacs is the CEO of the Arcview Group, a network of high net worth cannabis investors with more than 600 members who've raised $300 million for cannabis companies. As CEO, Ms. Kovac sets directives and leads growth strategies for the Arcview Group and its associated companies, including Arcview Ventures, Arcview Collective Fund, and Arcview Market Research. Kimberly has over 20 years of executive leadership and experience across technology services and investment companies. As the founder and CEO of MyJane, she built a cannabis wellness technology platform, which was acquired in January of 2019 by Manifest 7. Prior to MyJane, Kim founded or co-founded six additional companies, raised more than $100 million in equity capital, and has been an active angel investor for more than 10 years. Most recently, she served as president of the Los Angeles Venture Association, where she launched the Canna Lava Strategic Group, designed to bring cannabis industry leaders together in L.A., Kim brings a diverse skill set and broad range of executive experience to ArcView in a time of both growth and opportunity in cannabis investing. I am so excited to talk with you today, Kim. Thanks, Kara. Me too. Oh my gosh, you read through that and I feel like I'm 100 years old today. But uh, yeah, lot, lot there. You've accomplished a lot in the industry. You know, I, I feel like I've had every sort of layer uh, between, you know, being an operator, being an investor, being an advisor, um, you know, looking at different regs. I, I feel like I've gotten, you know, a very quick education in the cannabis space. But again, there's so much more to do and so much more to learn. Mm. Tell us about your origin story. How did you come to find yourself launching multi-million dollar companies in the cannabis industry? Well, let's see. So, you know, I, I really had a great foundation in tech and in startups and entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism, if I can say that word right, and, um, and really as an investor. And one of the things that I started early on in my career, so I, I started out at Deloitte. I only lasted a few years at Deloitte. The structure was great, but I needed the freedom to explore right? And express myself as a, as an entrepreneur. And so got into the tech space. Um, but every single startup, I looked at it from an investor's lens. I thought, you know, I'm going to dedicate my time to this startup. I'm going to fund this startup on my own, you know, to get it started. And I had to convince myself that this was the best investment ever. And if I couldn't do that with myself, then how am I going to do that with somebody else? And so to me, that was really kind of my origin of, of how I approach things. Um, I look at opportunities that way. And if I'm really ready to go in, kind of all in, um, there you go. And so I, you know, had a, a a number of companies. I will say they all exited, not necessarily successfully, but they all exited. And um, one was a very nice exit, became an investor, like officially invested in 17 companies. So I have a portfolio still of about, hmm, about 12 of those are still pretty active. And I decided, you know what, I need something new. I really wanted to try something different. And as I was looking around, coincidentally, my mother-in-law uh, came clean and said she was getting off of opioids after 10 years of being an addict and going on to cannabis. And I thought, what? <laughs> I mean, at first I was like, you know, it just wasn't comprehending it. And I wasn't putting pieces together. I had no background really in cannabis. I had no real experiences in the industry. Um, you know, I knew people that smoked. I knew people that smoked when they had, you know, chemo or other things and wanted to eat. And that was like my reference point. And it was just really phenomenal to see her transformation, like right in front of me, going from somebody who was so dependent on these prescriptions for pain relief to 
vibrant, beautiful. She could drive. She could talk eloquently. Um, she started looking 10 years younger, like right away. And I thought, I have to learn this. I've got to get into this. This is incredible. And uh, there you go. So I, I actually joined Arcview, Kara, as a, uh, as a member because I wanted to learn more. And I wanted to be able to surround myself with other like-minded investors who knew the space and I didn't right? I mean, I knew tech, I knew life sciences, I knew nothing about cannabis. And so for me, it was just such a great landing place um, where I could learn, I could bring my genius and um, I could start making investments. What a great story. And I was going to say, and then it evolved because, you know, I think everyone in cannabis, once they start to see the opportunities and different ways and means, it really kind of pushes you into something more. So being just an investor wasn't good enough. And that's where I started the company, My Jane. So, you know, it's it's really an interesting thing. I think once you start looking at cannabis, there's such a crossover between investors and entrepreneurs because of that reason. Yes, absolutely. So Women Empowered in Cannabis recently announced a collaboration between us and the ArcView Women Inclusion Network which, I mean, we are just so over the moon about it, and so are the women in the community. It was one of the most popular posts in our group last month when the press release went out. And I knew that women needed more help when it came to funding, but I did not realize that it was going to be such a hot topic. We did an incredible clubhouse, um, an AMA with Jean Sullivan the other day. And it's the Women Inclusion Network is something that is really, really needed in this industry. How did you come up with WIN and what is the primary goal for the cannabis industry and for ArcView? So, uh, you know, when I, I exited my Jane and I sold to Manifest 7, I lasted probably about like six months. It's sort of the founder dilemma, right? You, you, you start a company and you, and you exit and then you either stay on and continue or you move on to something else. And so I decided to move on. And as I did so, I was recruited into ArcView. Um, you know, Troy was looking at his next gig and it was just a perfect match for me because of my passion for, you know, being in the industry, being an investor. And and there's a third leg to that stool, which for me is about women. And uh, back in 2006, when I started one of my companies called Optionese, I was very um, conscious about having women as investors and women as board members um, in my tech company. It was a fintech company. And, you know, at the time in 2006, it was really hard to find women investors. Usually, um, they would be sort of, you know, co-investing with their husbands or different things like this. But I was fortunate enough to find a couple of women who were just starting this group called Golden Seeds, which was a group of investors, all women out of New York, and they were dedicated to changing the dynamic. And what they said is, which is brilliant, and I still believe this to this day, which is if women don't write checks, we are the, the problem. We are not going to have a solution here until we start writing checks into startup companies. And if we're not going to fund women entrepreneurs, who is? Step in. Don't lean in. Step in. Mm. And it was so powerful. And Kira, I just took that like and ran with it. And, you know, as I was building Optionese, my goal always at the end of that was to become an investor and to invest in women, which is what I had been doing then as now a member of Golden Seeds. I ran a chapter for Golden Seeds. We had 350 women, um, you know, across all these different chapters across the country. So it was women investing in women companies. When I joined ArcView as a member back before I became CEO, one of the things that was so powerful for me was the Women's Investor Network. And these were coffees and breakfast meetings and lunches that Jean Sullivan and uh, Bobby Paley and a few other, the pioneer women of, you know, Arcview said, this is important here too. We need to get these women together. We need to have a, a I wouldn't call it a safe space, but we need a place where we can really talk about, you know, women in this industry. And so when I joined Arcview, I said, you know what, let's just not have a breakfast or a lunch. Let's really double down. If we're going to make real change here, we, all of us, have to put our money where our mouth is. And if we're not going to bring in women as investors, shame on us, right? Like I said, who's going to do it? Mm -hmm. And so we started um, really actively 
promoting the Women's Investor Network at the time. We changed the name in January to the Women's Inclusion Network because the other part is we are no different if we are being separate. We have to embrace every single person who wants to advance the cause of women in cannabis. And that's men, that's everyone. And so we are an inclusive network. We are a promoter. We fund women companies. We're all about diversity and inclusion. And um, to me, that's so important. And we will not see real change until we all start making those investments. I think Step In is the title of a new book that needs to be written. I love that. Yes. I love that. And it's it's really, it kind of plays into the Leadership Summit, which we hope that you will be speaking at in mid-May, um, where we're going to be addressing power. How do women take power? How do they hold on to the power that they have? And how do we make sure that others in our industry get that power as well. So I love the idea of step in. It just, it's so much more powerful and potent than lean in. And it's an active word, right? Yes. It's not passive. And, you know, I, um, I've been on my soapbox for years now about women writing checks and we write checks. We write checks every day. We write them, you know, for the health and wellness, uh, you know, products in our families. We, you know, are 95% of that uh, consumer spend. So we have so much power in our pocketbooks. And, you know, we just have been reluctant to fund women-run companies. And I don't know what it is still. And I've looked at and read <laughs> and contributed to so much research, right, on why psychologically women have a hard time writing a check for a startup company where they'll write checks all day long for, you know, donations and nonprofits. And so... Mm -hmm. It's part of it is education, part of it is getting comfortable, and then part of it is having a place like WIN, um, like WEIC, where women can come together and do things together. You can rely on others to help you, right, in areas that you're not real comfortable with yet, so you mm -hmm. can learn. The writing checks reminds me of an interview I did with Sister Kate of Sisters of the Valley. And she talks about the fact that women need to share their wealth with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hire each other and we need to pay each other a fair wage and a fair price for our services and goods. So I, I it's like there's a movement forming here in cannabis to make sure that women include each other in each other's wealth. Absolutely. You know, that's uh, interesting you say that because at MyJane, one of our big, so MyJane, for those who may or may not know about that company, so it was a startup company. And the reason I started it was really very specific. I was looking for products in the cannabis industry that were going to help me get some sleep. <laughs> and nice. and at the time, I'm also very opportunistic, right? So as yeah. I was going to different investor events and things like this, I was looking at a lot of companies that were getting, you know, a lot of attention and they were talking about the products and how they were designing them. And, you know, they had women in mind. And I said, well, did you even do a group of women's studies to find out if that product even works for them? Well, no, but the package looks really good. And I thought, <laughs> oh, shit, excuse my French, you know, they don't know anything about women. We're going back 20 years in marketing. And I said, oh, you know, you can't just make it pink and say we're going to buy it. And so it really was a motivator for me to, you know, find the right products that were gonna, going to work for different reasons and to ask women what they wanted. I mean, just ask us. I mean, we are so good at telling you all kinds of things. We'll tell you exactly what we want. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, okay, we're just going to ask the women what they want. And it was brilliant. I mean, they came back in just droves of, hey, I like to, I don't want chocolate because I'm trying to lose weight at the same time. Mm. You know, I want to have no or low THC. I want this, I want that. And we were able then to work with women brands as much as we could, right? And again, this is, you know, 2017, 2018, you know, a lot of women companies are just getting started. But it was so important for us to engage other women entrepreneurs, you know, and finding yeah. those companies that were, you know, founded like, you know, Kush Queen and others that, you know, were founded by women. Kikoko Tea, I mean, just brilliant, you know, women founded companies. So I applaud that. So when you moved into the space at Arcview and you really started to learn about investing from that side of the table, what did you find was really kind of the most 
concerning or surprising, upsetting thing that you learned about women and and people of color as well in terms of how, the funding that they're getting or not getting or the opportunities that are not available to them or are available to them? What, what kind of rattled you when you really got to understand what's going on? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Kara. And I would say probably one I haven't thought about um, enough. And I think one thing that we need to really look at is, you know, how things were funded in the early days of cannabis. And I was guilty of this too, which is I went with the recommendations of people I knew who were already investors in the space, obviously, but also some newbies. And it was a little bit of FOMO. Um, I, I felt like I didn't get a chance as an investor, as an as an angel investor. I mean, I was a member of like four different angel groups. I mean, you know, I was used to certain things, right? The pitch, the process, the due diligence, the background checks, the this, the that, all of these things that made um, sort of this formula around a good angel investment that didn't exist in cannabis. And it was really uncomfortable, to be honest, as an investor coming in, because there was no due diligence, really. There were no like deal rooms, you know. Um, I asked for, you know, multiple years of financials. Well, they didn't really have those because, you know, they'd been in the illicit market before. Yeah. And now they were coming into the legal market. So there were all these layers, you know, in the cannabis that we had to sort of, you know, peel back a little and and I would say accept as investors. But I think that also created an atmosphere that was really not good for women or people of color because it was who you knew. It was back to the good old days of the boys clubs of, hey, I got a guy or I know someone and hey, you want to make this investment with me? And it was less around the diligence and more around who they knew and who was going to stand up for them. And that was how angel investing happened, you know, 15, 20 years ago before it became a process, before it became more of an institution. And I think what we're seeing now is as we move into what I call the normal investment cycle, which is you got to have your stuff together. You got to have a diligence room. You need to have, if not audited financials, at least someone who's financially savvy putting things together, you know, patents, um, the right lawyer, the right agreements in place, do you have NDAs, all these things that are part of a checklist, we're now requiring as cannabis investors. So to be honest, I think this is actually great because it allows women now to come into this or to re, you know come back to this and say, this is normal investing. Aha, I get it. I'm not at, as, at a disadvantage because I don't know a bunch of people necessarily who are going to write big checks, I can go to a group. I can go to an ArcView. I can go to another venture or angel group that is now investing in cannabis, and I know the process, and I get at least a, a, a shake at it, right? Mm -hmm. um, to me, I think that's super important because we saw that too in the early days of other industries, like the internet, you know? I mean, I I remember my first, you know, internet-based company, and literally, if you had a .com at the end of your name, people were throwing money at you, and it was who you knew. Yeah, I do remember that. Remember that? I was, was like, free for all. <laughs> I'm like, something, something .com. I'm like, really? That's not even a business. Doesn't matter. We have a website. You know, it was just like, wow. Okay. Wait, so, I, yeah. That just. It, that is such a good point because we all also know what happened when people threw tons of money at that industry. It completely collapsed on itself and millions and millions of dollars were lost. Exactly. And we're seeing that. We saw that. We're still going to see that in the cannabis space as these things sort of shake out. And, you know, let's not beat ourselves up about it. It's just part of the evolution of an industry. And, you know, those early investors, there isn't a lot to go on with comps and valuation analysis and all this because it just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so let's just say, okay, we went through that process. Now we get a chance to really evaluate, like I said, things differently and create a more, uh, a fair playground for everyone to come into and say, we're all going to be evaluated on the same things. It isn't just who you know, right? And I, I love that. I think it's great. So what is the cold hard truth about specifically 
women getting funded and how few of them. I mean, our numbers, especially in cannabis, are under 5%. So is it changing for the better or the worse? And what can women do to raise those extremely low numbers of us getting funded? And we've talked about writing checks and we've talked about, you know, getting yourself, excuse me, We've talked about getting your ducks in a row, making sure that your numbers are right and and you've presented yourself correctly. But there are a lot of women that do those things. So what else can we do to help each other to take those bricks out of the wall? So I'm going to be nice and then I'm going to get real because I think there's two parts to this, as always, um, sort of with fundraising. Um, so I can, I can go off of my own experience and kind of talk about that. I can also talk to the fact that, you know, having run a chapter of Golden Seeds and seeing, you know, 200, 300 applications per month come into our network from women-run companies and how many we would actually bring on stage and want to see is a very small number. And we were completely 100% dedicated to funding women-run companies. So women, those of you listening out there, first of all, who are you asking to invest? Are you asking a friend? Are you asking an investor? Are you asking a private equity? Are you going for a bank loan? You need to know who you're talking to and you need to understand what they invest in. So here's a really good example. Golden Seeds in its first, started in 2006. So part of its charter is to invest in women companies. Well, a lot of women start CPG companies, consumer product companies. They would come to Golden Seeds with a great company, great idea, no traction. And we said, okay, (laughs) right there on our website, it says if you don't have a million dollars in revenue and at least a certain amount of EBITDA or a certain gross margin, we will not look at your consumer product company. But these women would apply anyway. They would look and, and say, well, you know, maybe I'm different. That's our rule. And the reason we have that rule, Kira, is because we invested earlier in that stage where it was just a great idea or they had a good concept, a few, few sales, not much. And what we found as investors is that it just takes so much between a couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue and a million dollars of revenue is like night and day in the consumer product category. And in order to bridge that gap, Golden Seeds just didn't feel like we had the right people to assess that unicorn in the mix. We needed it to be at a million dollars. So my my point here is that, and this isn't just women, by the way, a lot of people approach this <laughs> and they're like, you know, can't, will you do my investment? And I said, gosh, you know what? I'm a cannabis investor. Why are you showing me a candle? You know, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have a thesis. And if you match my thesis, I'm going to take your phone call. I'm going to take your meeting. I'm going to listen to you very intently. But also keep in mind, if I have an investment thesis and I invest in cannabis, I'm going to know a little something about cannabis. And so you better know a little something about cannabis and be able to go toe to toe with me and come into the meeting. I'll make this my last part on my soapbox, I promise. No, please stay on the soapbox. That's why we have it here. All right. So so first off, you need to create a list of a hundred different investors to go after if with your startup company and know that only ten percent of them are even gonna take a phone call. Okay? Okay. Ten percent. So if you only do ten, that's one. Okay, it's math. So not everybody's going to be enamored with your deal. Most people are not. You're going to have to, it's a numbers game. So you just got to keep at it. Every meeting you have is a learning experience. So when somebody tells you your product is shit, ask them really specifically what shit means. And then take that to heart and understand why they're saying it. They're not saying it because they don't like you. They're not saying it because, you know, they don't like the way you're dressed or, you know, whatever it is. They they are saying it for a reason and you need to not be emotional and not get defensive and try to understand what they mean by that. And then the next phone call that you have, incorporate that feedback to some extent, right? I'm not saying completely change your business, but understand why they said it and maybe they're not going to say it on the next phone call. So fundraising to me is about learning. 
right? It's like learning a sport. You learn how to swing a golf club, you make a little adjustment, you swing it the next time, and pretty soon you're going to hit that ball straight down the fairway and it's going to be beautiful. But it's going to take you some time to get there. And so you have to be really open during the process to feedback and not getting defensive. So women, I'm going to come back at you again. Sorry, it's my thing. Leave the emotions at the door. So a lot of women would come into Golden Seeds and I was actually surprised that they're sitting across the table from me telling me that I'm not investing in them because they're a woman-run company. (laughs) Oh, wow. Right? (laughs) And I'm like, wow, okay. So we have one mouth and two ears. And my mom always said, God designed that for a reason. So (laughs) shut the mouth, open both ears and listen. I said, we're not going to invest in your company because of XYZ. It has nothing to do with your gender, your race, your sex, any of that. It has to do with the company in which you presented. And so, you know, I think that's part, a really big thing. Fundraising is not personal. These people aren't your friends. These people aren't your, you know, family. These people are here to make money off of the deal that you have. And if you come to them with the most kick-ass deal in the world and something where they're like, oh my gosh, I look at investing like this is an opportunity. I'm presenting somebody, if I'm really in it, I'm presenting somebody with an opportunity to join me and making an incredible company with an incredible exit and an incredible return. That's how I approach it, right? And so we as women, we have a tendency to associate money with our own personal worth. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. It's hard. I get it. It's really, really hard. This hasn't been ingrained in us, Kara, for hundreds and thou- literally thousands of years. And reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. Yes. Yes. And I mean, honestly, I've raised uh, a lot of money. I have ra- I have sat with the biggest bigots in the world and the sec- most sexist guys in the world. And yes, they've talked about how I've looked and my outfit and this and do I want to come to their hotel room and all these other things. I'm just, no, thank you. And I move on. And I put them in the 99 category and not the one out of 100 that I would want to do business with. And, and pretty soon, you know what happened to some of those guys? They're not around either because, you know, a lot of people just said, no, thank you. And they move on. And so I think for us, we just, you know, and I, again, I know it's hard. <laughs> I don't do it all the time either. But, you know, if you can come at this very um, disassociated, right? take yourself out of the equation and just present it as a company and this is it. And and people always say, this is your baby. Well, that's the worst thing to say to a woman founder. No kidding. Right? You know, because we're maternal. And I mean, we lay in front of a speeding train to save our children. Guess what? Men don't do that with startups. Mm, Interesting. Right? So there's a little bit of uh, mindset shifting that needs to happen. Yes. And only you can do that. I mean, only we can do that. That is also so powerful. Think about that. Think if we shifted our mindset just slightly and we disassociated ourselves and our person of who we are, you know, personally with the company in which we're starting. And we're there to, like I said, be an investor, not emotional, look at it as a business and an opportunity, and we sell it as an opportunity. Just think about how maybe that might change the funding dynamic a little. That's really interesting. You know, so many women that I know who are looking for funding, they've got several employees. They have big dreams. There's a lot riding on their need for this funding. Yep. And so they, they walk in already a nurturer with the weight of the future of their employees and their big dreams. And it, it creates a lot of emotional intensity, yes. that is, right? That, that comes to the table and can work against them. And, you know, but th- in a way though, those are the things that make them a really good leader. Yes. And statistically, when you fund women, they do better than men. Right because of those reasons. And I'm not saying don't have those emotions and connections to your company, just not right then. 
Okay. So I want to, I, I asked Deborah Johnson this the other day when I was interviewing her. And I, I'm curious to know, since we're on this topic, what, what your response is to this. So if we were to blow up the entire funding system, as we know it today, everything we've talked about, it just blown to bits and we had to build it anew. What could we do differently in rebuilding it to ensure that more women and people of color and other marginalized groups get to participate in the investing system? Because, I mean, look, there are things that we can do to change it, but there are implicit biases in the system. We're only at 3% in cannabis. Yeah. So what is it about, we can change, but what is it about the system that needs to change? Well, boy, that's a lot to unpack there. And I think there's so many different pieces to it. So if we just look at sort of cannabis in general, cannabis is already coming from behind, you know. They, there isn't the same dynamic when we, I use the example of, you know, the, the internet bubble or burst or boom or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, there wasn't this layer of federal illegality, right, on the internet where if you walk into, and I'll just use like Tech Coast Angels, they're SoCal, you know, they've got five chapters, they got 300 members. Um, they're probably one of the most premier angel groups for technology, so if you walk in there and you have a business that, you know, is still federally illegal, they're not going to see it, right? You're not going to have access to that group. And then on top of that, if you do have individuals who may not work as the group, but now work maybe just as their own and they do the investment, they're going to say, well, how am I going to exit this deal? And if your real only exit scenario is to look at them in the eye and say, in 18 months, we're going to go public on a very small Canadian exchange with a lot of really wonky little things that you got to do in order to get there, they're going to look at you and go, are you freaking kidding me? What? <laughs> so cannabis, yes, we have a very small amount of percentage of capital in cannabis in general, right? So if you take your pool of 100 people, you now are now counting it down to 20, because the hundred that you might have started with, 80 of them aren't going to touch your deal anyway, right? Mm -hmm. And and because now we've got this really funky exit thing, you know, I think what you said is really interesting. I think cannabis is trying to mold itself into these other things, which once federal legalization happens, that's a really easy path. But for, in this interim period, it's really, really hard. Um, ArcView um, has a broker dealer. We started ArcView Capital last year. Just that in itself, I mean, it's it's great. I'm so thrilled to have it, but it is so difficult to work in a structured financial system that requires federal legalization, and you're not. And you're trying to work in, a, in an industry and, and bite at the edges, meaning it's an ancillary business. It's not plant, not plant touching. Just say that, right, out loud a couple times. And it's just kind of um, funny if you think about it, right? We're in the cannabis industry and you walk into somebody and say, we're not plant touching. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Then what are, you know, <laughs> then technically you're really not in cannabis. You're in some other type of business like software mm. or marketing or whatever. And you just happen to have cannabis clients, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you have to tell somebody that you're not plant touching in order to get their investment, then, you know, it's, it's different. It's just so there's, like I said, there's so much there to unpack, but I think that where we have an opportunity and where I think this could actually be a blow up and be a level playing field is crowdfunding. What I mean by that is the crowdfunding rules under the jobs act, um, that Obama approved way back when allows for non-accredited investors to make investments now up to $5 million starting Monday, um, the 15th of March. I'm not sure when this is going to air. So March 15th, the rules are changing so that $5 million can be raised by a single company in a crowdfunded platform um, from non-accredited investors. So Kira, this is huge for cannabis. Huge. Because what accreditation means, for those of you who may or may not know this, is that you have to have a certain amount of income, you have to have a certain amount of net worth. And fortunately or unfortunately, women and people of color and, you know, people in disadvantaged communities don't meet that requirement. They just don't. Sorry, wasn't the limit before, because you said it just went up to 5 million, wasn't it limited to 10% of your income? 
Um, it was, there were some limitations. Well, it's $5 million for the company. It used to be a million dollars. Okay. Oh, I, and oh, okay. so you were, so you're capped at a million, at least that's my under, my take on it. I'm sure there were some of the other exceptions and various things like this, but you were capped at a million. Now it goes to five. Also the, the definition of accredited investor has also loosened up a little bit. So back to your initial question is if we're going to disrupt how startup companies and businesses are funded, especially in the cannabis space, then let's not just follow the playbooks that are out there, which, you know, we do. (laughs) I mean, we have a venture firm, we've got an angel network. I mean, we've got all these things and we follow that playbook, but we are also introducing like this crowdfunding where this is a new playbook. This is something we get to decide on. We get to, to work through. And if we do it right, it really opens up cannabis investment to everyone. And to me, that's what's necessary because cannabis businesses, here's the other part, not every cannabis business should be on a path to an exit, right? If you want someone of color or in a disadvantaged community to have a business, to really make wealth, to create a legacy you know, company or store or whatever, or have something multi-generational, you can't take angel money. You really can't have a crowded cap table of people who want you to exit in five to seven years, right? It doesn't work that way. But if we crowdfund or we do it a little differently or we open up other avenues, then that person can keep that business and keep it for 20 years, 50 years, right? It becomes a family business. You know, I don't think that a lot of women understand that very simple difference between, you know, I want help growing my company, but you want me to sell it? Are you kidding? It's my baby. Right. There you go. Back to the baby, right? I know, Kara. And it's so hard. And it's one of the things that um, I've been working at. I think a a lot of people have been working at is sort of educating, you know, what this system is. I mean, if you, um, if you join the military, right? And you say, I don't want to have my hair cut or I don't want to wear the uniform. Well, then don't join the military, right? There's rules. They operate in a certain way. There's requirements in order to be part of that. There's requirements. And if you're going to go to an angel group, or you're going to go to a VC or a private equity firm or what have you, there is an exit provision. And sometimes that's even written into the documents that you have to exit within a certain amount of time or they can force the sale of your company. But don't think of it as negative. Think of it as something actually positive. So I'm an investor, right? I have I have 17 companies I've invested in, 12 of which are still going on. I want those 12 to have an exit. And the reason is not just to make my money back, you know, get paid and make a return and all this other stuff, but now I get to take that capital and I get to go invest in another company. Mm. Right? If I only have a certain amount of money that I've allocated to make investments in startups and I put it all in, and it sits there for 10 years, that's not doing anybody else any good. It's just sitting there. I'm out of the market. No more am I an angel investor. But if I can start getting returns on that money and I can start recycling it, then I can go put it into another company and help them and another company and help them. And you see what I'm saying? So it, it, it's perspective. I mean, we can always say, oh my gosh, they want me to sell my company. Yes, They do so that they can take that money and they can go invest in somebody else and make that dream come true. And you can go start another business. Exactly. So we've talked about the companies that, you know, you've got to show a million or more uh, in profits every year. And then on the other side, we have crowdfunding. Yeah. What do you say to the women who are in the middle there who need $50,000 to just get over that hump? Or who are just under that million, maybe they're at half a million, but they can't take that next step to scale unless they have money. What what do you do with them? What advice do we have for them? So that's the hardest zone to be in because that's where everybody everybody, and a lot of people are. And if you look at every sort of startup, um, there's a great thing called the Halo Report. Um, It's it's done out of. 
uh, gosh, I can't remember the name of the organization. I'll remember in a minute um, that puts this out every single year. And it's it's been studying angel and startup companies for probably the last 20 or 30 years and the cycles. So 90% of all startups fail and all 100% of all startups fail because they run out of money. I mean, it's just, that's it. It's capital intensive. Um, so, you know, we always kind of had a saying with, you know, in the startup community, which is you need to be ready to kind of quit your job. And your job is something that's going to pay the bills. In the meantime, you're going to have a startup company. And there's um, a crossover point. And so you're going to have to really figure out how are you going to fund your company until you meet the metrics of an angel group or a group of investors to take it to that next level. That's why we call it friends and family. So if you're going to start a company today, go get a whole bunch of friends. I don't know if you can expand your family, maybe, but <laughs> go get a whole bunch of friends who are willing to even put in a small amount of money, all right, to help you at the right time get to that right place. And it's so hard. I hear you. God, I wish there was a better answer um, to say, hey, go here or go there. It is always a struggle for founders to get to that first level where they're able to take in a couple hundred thousand dollars from an angel group. Um, before that, it's really just, you know, shaking the bushes and who do you know and, you know, who's going to help you with this or are people going to work for free? Are they going to work for stock? Are you going to have consultants versus employees? And, you know, really keeping your burn down to a minimum. But there's real no good answer for that, to be honest with you. And that I, is part of my, the question of blowing up the system because this is a place, you know, f start with friends and family. Well, not everybody has friends and family that have money. That's true. That's true. You know, and it's often women and people of color that are in that situation. And crowdfunding can help, but it's also not going to be the be all end all for it either. I mean, if you don't have a business that's really sustainable yet, that's going to be tough on crowdfunding too. You know, and there's crowdfunding platforms that are not equity based, you know, um, and in certain parts of the cannabis space like hemp and CBD, those are allowable. But, you know, there are things like Indiegogo and Kickstarter and but you have a requirement to actually make product with those funds, you know. So it's, um, you know, people are buying things in advance. Um, you know, it isn't easy. And I would say that, you know, not and that's why there's such a high failure rate. You know, the first year of a startup, it's 90 percent failure. Those are really those are really painful numbers for a country that prides itself on entrepreneurialism and small business. We yeah. need more help. Yeah, we do. But I also think we also need to get really, really clear on what sort of an entrepreneur is versus an inventor. Mm -hmm. And also, you know what? It's okay to have a job. It's okay to have a career and not be an entrepreneur. You know, I also see a lot of people kind of moving and becoming an entrepreneur because it's a saving grace when they've lost their job. Or it's something they can say, you know, God, I hate my job. I'm going to quit. I'm going to become CEO of my own company. And all of a sudden their LinkedIn profile looks a whole lot better, right? <laughs> their founder and CEO of, you know, something. <laughs> and yep. in reality, they didn't do it for the right reason. They did it because they were in a bad situation before and, uh, and that didn't work out for them. And so they were like, oh, I'll do a startup. I'll start a company. And, you know, it's like, no, that's the only startups I've had that have been successful. And believe me, I've had, you know, six of them. Well, yeah, six of them now were the ones that I did with intention. You know, they were the right product, the right fit, the right market, doing a ton of research and finding that white space, whether it was a MyJane or an Optionese or an Oryx Energy or what have you, we really intentionally went after that. It wasn't because I needed a job or I'd been, you know, long time career and needed a change and I was burned out or, you know, I wanted to be my own boss. I mean, we hear these things all the time. And unfortunately, we teach that in biz school, which they, I come in and guest lecture at a bunch of schools. <laughs> and yeah, sometimes they invite me back <laughs> after I say that. And sometimes they don't. But although the university should love me because I'm like, do not drop out of school. I'm like, whatever you can do, finish your education. That is good advice. But, you know, we, again, why are you doing a startup? Would you invest if you had a million dollars and this wasn't your idea and somebody came to you, would you invest mm. in that company? 
That's a good question. Right? And if the answer is no, then what the hell are you doing? You know? Sorry, Kara. I'm kind of, uh, I know people like to hear the warm fuzzies from women. No, that is why we had you on. And I'm so grateful that you are being honest with us because far too often people in positions of power just want to say the warm and fuzzy. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about warm and fuzzies. Hey, when I find the right company and it is spot on and somebody's walked in and I don't care who they are, like I said, man, woman, child, I don't, you know, doesn't matter to me. I am all about helping that person 100% because that is the genius, right? That's the, the exact thing I'm looking for, which is they nailed it. They got it. And I get excited because they're excited and they know it. They know if they're not getting an investment from me, they're going to get it from somebody else because they're onto something. Well, let's talk about some more things you might be excited about. I want to know what you are most excited about when it comes to legalization and also what you're most concerned about. But let's talk, start with what are you most excited about the prospect of legalization in the United States? Um, you know, I think it's twofold. Obviously, you know, it opens up um, investments like nobody's business. I mean, now you could literally, once it's legal, I mean, people invest in startup companies out of their retirement accounts, right? And that now gets opened up in the legal cannabis space. Um, we don't have to, you know, put things on a checkbox, which is, do you have a bank account? I mean, that's the funniest question I ever think I asked somebody. Again, <laughs> going public in Canada and do you have a bank account? I mean, we don't have to ask or be afraid of those questions because um, that's sort of a natural. So I think it just opens up all sorts of things. I don't think it's nirvana like some people might think, like all of a sudden, oh my gosh, cannabis, you can get it anywhere. You can send it in the mail. You can do this. It's going to be a little bit longer time as states figure out, you know, what do they now do with their own cannabis regulations in light of it being federal. So I think the biggest thing is the banking system, which has to change, will which is great. I think the second layer is that product availability will be a little bit more open to people who need it and have taken that war on drugs mentality and said, until it's federally legal, I'm not going to do it. So I think there's now this great opportunity to bring in net new consumers, right? Net new investors. And then the third layer is um, education, research, opening up the universities. To me, that's actually the most exciting. Because I think there's so much about this plant. We just don't know, right? I mean, we're relying on anecdotal data. I mean, I have a really good friend of mine. She's my best friend. She was my business partner, my Jane. She's taking cannabis for cancer. She's got stage four breast cancer. And she's been on cannabis routine for two years with a lot of efficacy, you know? And I'm like, oh, if we could get this into research mode, I mean, how amazing is this going to be, right? So those are the things that I see are the sort of silver lining of federal legalization. Um, not all of it's silver lining, right? We've had a protected industry. Let's be honest. States have protected businesses. States have protected little fiefdoms. You know, um, if you want to sell pot in uh, Orange County, California, you have one city. You have Santa Ana. That's it. Guess what? City of Santa Ana is living fat and happy right now because they get all the tax dollars and they get, you know. Um, but now where I'm at in Laguna Beach, we can now have it in Laguna Beach. We could have it, you know, in Newport. We could have it anywhere. And, um, you know, those are going to really affect the licenses that were issued in Santa Ana. They're going to affect, you know, people's access to cannabis. Um, and, you know, a lot of money will be lost. And what are you most excited about in 2021? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think I said this a little early in 2020, and I'm still kind of licking my wounds on it. But um, I'm going to go double down on this statement, which is momentum. So this is my word for the year. And I'm really excited about the momentum that we're seeing. And it isn't just one place or another. It isn't the fact that cannabis was deemed essential. And during the pandemic. Um, it's not the fact that we now have vaccines that are coming and we're probably going to start getting together in person again. Um, it's the federal attention that we're now getting with cannabis and really people looking at it across both sides of the aisle. There's momentum there, right? There's momentum in the investor community. There's momentum in social justice and social equity programs that I have not seen that I think is the crux and 
such a necessary component. You talked about redrafting how funding and everything happens in cannabis. That to me is essential because if we're really, really going to go back to the roots of the cannabis industry, we have to be very conscious of how we develop this going forward. And to me, the social equity and social justice programs, they're not charity, they're not handouts, they're opportunities to make money, but doing it in a way that we all feel is necessary. And so I think there's just, again, a lot of momentum. There's a lot of really cool things happening. And I am just thrilled. I'm so thrilled to be in this space. I would never in a million years, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, um, had I, would, you know, did I pick an industry and I'd be like, well, you know, I like dabbling in tech and being in this. I am all in on cannabis and I'm going to be here for a long time. Well, we are very lucky to have you, Kim. Where can people reach you or learn about ArcView and the Women Inclusion Network? So um, I would say generally just kind of hit our site, which is arcviewgroup.com. And um, we have, you know, the the WIN, the Women's Inclusion Network um, is part of that. We've got our ventures. we got our consulting. So we got a little bit of everything for anyone, everyone. We're kind of an ecosystem, if you will, um, about the business of cannabis. And so we're just here to help. Well, thank you so much, Kim, for your time. I could sit and talk with you all day, but unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. So thank you for your time, and thank you for sharing your journey with us today. Oh, Kira, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our brand new website at womenempoweredincannabis.com. There you'll find lots of information on our new membership offerings for women working in cannabis, including a great deal that the Women Invest Inclusion Network at ArcView has partnered with us to do a discount on a joint membership. So you can find out information there or at the ArcView website. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Consider becoming a supporting member or supporting business for benefits and access across the network. And join us next week for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why isn't the endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.